A hundred years ago, our cutting-edge intellectuals and best scholastic thinkers in the early 20s imagined a world that would be free from the meddling arm or the cumbersome burden of religion. They felt that all religions were superstition based upon stories that had been told throughout the ages, and the whole idea was more like a fairy tale. They believed that spirits and angels and demons and all those kinds of things were something that were a corrupted idea of how people dealt with their frustrations, anxieties in life. And they said, the day will come. It'll all be over with. Postmodern thinkers in the 20s were dedicated humanists who saw no place for God, his Bible, or the traditions of the church. And they felt that science would solve all problems. Now, I want to remind you that science is working on the coronavirus right now. Figure that out. Understand the frustrations that we have had through the ages of people and the way that they dealt with these things. I want to share the very brief story with you of one man in that age that had a profound influence for the negative. And then we're going to look at the life of a young man, Absalom, who had every reason to be literally a shining light in the life of the people of God. And his life became a disaster. Amazingly, on November the 22nd, 1963, a day which will live in infamy just like December the 7th, 1941, one man considered king-like. In fact, his, his family was compared to the mythical Camelot died in Dallas, Texas. And you know who I'm speaking of, John F. Kennedy. Now, John F. Kennedy made his mark on society, yet it's now very seldom even recognized, if seen at all. But when he died, that same day, two men died. And most papers never reported it. Certainly no televisions discussed it in any way. But C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley both died that day. C.S. Lewis, you know the impact he had. C.S. Lewis was so insignificant worldwide when he died that only seven people attended his funeral there at Oxford, not far from where he lived in, in a little house called the Kilns on the edge of King's College. Yet his infamy began after his death. He was known regionally. But suddenly, the impact has grown, and today, you could say in Christian circles and even moderate uh, worldly circles, he's a superstar for what he wrote and what he produced. But the other man, Aldous Huxley, what an unusual man. You understand Lewis, but Huxley, it's hard to understand. He reshaped our current world thinking today so that I can say that he truly impacted our culture even in the last few weeks in America in so many ways. And I'll tell you why. He was a British novelist. He wrote a book entitled Brave New World. Most of us read that book when we were in grade school. And it was an important book to so many people. But many of us don't, didn't realize at that time he was the grandson of the man that was called Charles Darwin's bulldog, T.H. Huxley, who pushed forward the idea that, that uh, was taught by Darwin. Also, he was the brother of the leading atheistic evolutionist, Sir Julian Huxley, who wrote 
incredible articles all of his life supporting the myth of God and the belief that science was to be the future God. Now, too often, what I'm saying to you this, too often amoral or immoral things are floating around us and we ignore them. Church has done a good job of hiding from these things or pretending they're not there. But the reality is they have impacted our world in a mighty way. You know, over the last couple of days, we've, uh, weeks rather, we've looked at Satan, Lucifer, as the angel of light who became the first to fall. And the king of Babylon, which the prophet Isaiah compared to Lucifer. We've looked at Ananias and Sapphira. We've looked at Doeg the Edomite. We've looked at, at Jezebel, that horrible woman who came from a pagan land and, and absolutely corrupted Israel. I hope you're beginning to understand something of the influence of supernatural evil on humans who are seeking God. It's not that we want to see that. Not that we really need to see that. I wish we could push that away, but we can't. That's the reality that we live in. We live in a world that is, is both physical and spiritual. And because of that, we have to be aware of it. And that's been the whole point for the last five-week sermons, is that we need to understand that because we are not just a physical being, but we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and we are spiritual, we have to be prepared to fight those battles. They come our way. We can't ignore them. We have to face them. We must understand that there are issues out there that will destroy us. Just as much as Saul, when he heard the song of the people, that mentioned that he had killed thousands in battle, yet David had killed his tens of thousands, and immediately he became bitter. And that bitterness did not end until he took his life. In the same way, we see other issues happening like that. Here today, we're going to look at what is called by many people the Absalom spirit. We've looked at the Jezebel spirit and its influence, but the Absalom spirit goes in a different direction. Absalom, uh, or the Absalom spirit, was one that influenced a man who seemingly was trying to do good. Absalom appeared to want to help the king. Being his son, surely he was not going to undermine what was going on there. David had already become king. He was in Jerusalem. He had already brought the ark back, and the glory was returned there. In fact, they surrounded the ark and, and, and everything there with singers. A thousand full-time Wouldn't you love to have that? A thousand full-time singers, and they sang constantly, praising God and worshiping him. So many good things had happened. But then Absalom rose up, the son of the king. Absalom, he did something that I thought was so unusual. He always, he made sure he had enough money from the king's treasury to have 50 men on horses go before him. Think he wanted to be noticed? I think so. He wanted to make a place for himself that was unique. Now understand... Chariots and horses spoke to them as great power. And that's exactly what he was trying to say to everyone there. I always think of Will Rogers walking with his little nephew down Pennsylvania Avenue and uh, a, 
limousine was going by, led by about six motorcycles and several other cars around it. And, and his nephew said, wow, Uncle Will, what is that? And he said, that, my son, is a public servant going to work. Maybe they were following Absalom's role model. I don't know. But Absalom would not go into the city and, and, and you know, go there and honor his father and be there to serve him. No, he would sit outside the gate where the wise people would sit. And as people would come in heading to see the king, he would stop them, encounter them, act like their best friend, not like the king, son, but their best friend. When they would bow to him, he'd kiss them on the cheek like they were a friend. And when he would encounter them, they were always, always, always right. And he would say, oh, that we could have a judge in Israel that could take care of this. There was one. He was right through the gate. It it was obvious what Absalom was doing. He was creating a hindrance. He wanted to steal what was not his... It could have been his had he have served faithfully and with wisdom and with faith over a period of time. But he wanted to be the supplanter, the stealer. He wanted to take away what was not meant to be his at that time. Now, how did this spirit spirit get its power? Simple. He looked on what his father had, and he was jealous. He felt that he could do better. Rather than wanting to learn, he wanted to teach because he felt, surely I know what's going on. Now, I want to remind you that there is an Absalom spirit that a person can take on, but I want to look at the original Absalom, the man, and what he did. It's a sad story because, remember, if you read about him, you find out that he was a very handsome young man. In fact, in describing him, they said from from head to toe, he was just perfect. I remember Vance Havner said one time that he, and of course, Vance Havner was probably one of the ugliest preachers that have ever, by the way, he preached in this church back in the 70s. He was my hero because the depth of his faith and his understanding of the personality of God and the movement of the Spirit was beyond understanding. But Vance Havner said one time when somebody said something to him about, they said, why don't you print some brochures and put your picture on it? He said, this face on a brochure? He said, they'd never invite me to preach. And he said one time when somebody said, don't you wish you could go have plastic surgery? And be? He said, listen, God makes a handsome man every once in a while just to break the monotony. So what? I I hear what he's saying and I understand that. But even in the day of David, as it is today, that person with the striking appearance, you don't have to worry about their intellect or their direction in life, their morality or anything else. They're suddenly put on a level beyond understanding. With the way our media works today, all you have to do is, is to be incredibly strikingly handsome or beautiful. And you're forgiven of all sins. In fact, people want to emulate your behavior, right or wrong. And that's what's so frightening. Absalom always echoes to me, though, disobedience, pride, hypocrisy, self-promotion, and above all, rebellion. 
Absalom, remember, was David's third son. He had a lot going for him in so many ways. And, and of course, most of y'all remember this from, from Sunday school. What did he have that stood out? Long hair, beautiful hair. Everybody loved that hair. Uh, my son reminded me when he grew his hair out, and I said, please cut your hair. Your grandmother's going to come back from heaven and beat you up and shave your head. Because if my hair ever touched my ears, she threw a fit because she considered that, can I say this, hippie-like. Now, how, you, how hair touching your ears is hippie-like, but that was her generation. And my son looked at me and he said, Jesus had long hair, and so did Absalom. And I said, yeah, and, you know, remember what happened to Absalom, so be careful. Now, Absalom was... was, was had another trait beyond that, that that showed through in time. And you know what it was? This bitterness and this anger. He was so frustrated with life. He was so unhappy. He had everything that, that a young man could want. Everybody knew him and they noticed him. He could absolutely turn a crowd so quickly it was incredible. But he was very bitter. And the longer he lived, the more bitter he became. And remember, he was so concerned about whether or not he'd be recognized in the kingdom generations later that he had a monument put up, and it's still standing there near the old city. It's, it surprisingly is called Absalom's Monument. And he had it put up not because of anything he had done, but because he existed. What a strange way to honor someone. Isn't it funny in, the, in our country today, we're tearing down monuments to people of the past who they've accomplished what they've accomplished and in history, good, bad, or indifferent, it happened. And monuments were placed there to remember them. And now we're tearing the monuments down. Not us. But people are tearing the monuments down, trying to pretend it didn't happen. I always remember, I keep hearing this voice telling me those who don't learn the lessons of the past, you remember the rest of it, are doomed to repeat them. And we're seeing a little bit of the Absalom attitude in the world we live in. Now, now I want to talk for just a few minutes about the character flaws in the personality of Absalom to understand how he got there. Because if you don't understand how he got there, you're not going to appreciate anything beyond that. Number one, Absalom was frustrated with life. Everywhere he looked, he didn't see his hand. He saw other people's hand, and he could not appreciate what they had done. Absalom only valued himself and his accomplishments. Are you hearing what created this young man? He didn't understand that God worked in the life of many people. 2 Samuel 18, 18 says, Now Absalom in his lifetime had reared up for himself a pillar in the king's valley. He called it Absalom's monument, even had it marked. Yet there's nothing of reference on that monument that he accomplished. I think Absalom had big dreams for his life, but his ambitions were very frustrating. Absalom was guilty of plotting to murder his own brother several years before this text that we read. Believing that he was doing service 
to his family because he didn't like his brother. Then, then he was put under house arrest and he began to plot against everyone there. He was unrepentant. He never confessed his sin. Never. He always thought that he was right. Absalom was in a frustrating place in life and he never got out of it. Secondly, he was a victim of the false criteria for all that he was doing. Absalom had a way of judging everything by his standard. He didn't understand that there is right and wrong in the world. There is a standard. C.S. Lewis, when he became a Christian, said the influence that he had was, he said he, he had asked the question for many, many years, if there's a God who really loves, why does he allow children to suffer? Why does he allow evil people to destroy innocent people? If there's a God in heaven, why do these things happen? And one day, all by himself, in that massive brain that seemed to wander everywhere from, a, from the UK to Narnia, he suddenly realized one day, riding in the back of a car with some friends going to a zoo, maybe the reason I'm frustrated and know good, bad, and right and wrong is because there's a standard that says what is good and bad and what is right and wrong. And that standard is God. And because of that standard, I can be frustrated, and God too is frustrated because He allows mankind to choose, and they keep making the wrong choices. And in the middle of that decision, in understanding that, C.S. Lewis, very quietly, in a contemplative way that only he could do, closed his eyes, smiled, and said, Jesus, come into my heart. You can read that story in, in the book, Surprised by Joy, about his coming to Christ. What is sad is that Absalom never understood right and wrong, good and bad, that God was there and he was a standard. He didn't have that criteria. He he was frustrated that people didn't do like he was doing, and what he saw himself doing was perfect. Absalom's spirit typically harbors camouflage bitterness, unresolved offenses, disappointments, and anger. When they watch an opera, in their head they sing it a different way. When they watch a play, they reset the plot. When they hear a sermon, they would have taken it another direction. They never look at anything that they observe as being good or profitable in any way. A modern-day Absalom's ideas are prevalent everywhere. Portland, Oregon. Washington State. Even Washington, D.C., it's, it's absolutely eaten up with that. And I think, and I hate to say this, but it's almost, it's, it's almost hilarious that we have a chaplain in the U.S. Senate that opens them with prayer. What could you possibly say to a group of people that are so self-focused that the only thing they see as being an accomplishment is to destroy the other party? And they don't understand that they represent not the elitist, but the common man. Do you understand now why Jesus came and wore the garments of a workman? That he stayed away from the religious leaders because they had become so heady and high-minded that they had lost touch with what God had called them to do. 
But I want you to realize this too. There was a hidden agenda in what Absalom was doing. An Absalom spirit always has a hidden agenda that they don't discuss. Because inside, here's what they believe. They believe that, that the authority that is there is not to be trusted. That that authority is incompetent and doesn't understand. And they always know the right way to handle a situation. And that is what I call a hidden rebellion. An inner rebellion. A frustration that sees life as nothing but a, a place that's a, a disaster waiting for you to fix it. Now there's a biblical principle that states this. If the root is evil, then the fruit coming from that root is also evil. This simply means that a group birth from the workings of an Absalom spirit will suffer the same fall in due time. Romans eleven sixteen says, If the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. That's why as Christians, one of the most important things we can do is examine our own hearts. Not examine other people. Not examine the world. You know, we know the world's broken. We understand that. We see where it's going. Do you sometimes, those of you that are my age and older, do you sometimes look around and see the world and where it's going? And you say, you know, I remember hearing that when I was a teenager. But I thought they were just crazy. I thought they were just exaggerating. I didn't think that we'd ever, ever have, you know, socialism or communism in America. I never thought that we would, would get to a point where we didn't honor our veterans and, and, and encourage our workers. For all of you that thought that way, we're here. And our grandparents are up in heaven nodding their head because they understood. God never meant for this world to be heaven. We did the breaking. And what we do here on earth of building a house or building a business or building a reputation. None of that matters. You, you leave it behind. We, we have had several members and family members of this church to die in the last week. And everything they accomplished stays behind. Only what they sent ahead to heaven really matters. And sometimes we forget that. There's some things that last forever. People. And as I told you the other week, one of the simplest, most astounding sayings that I've ever expressed is this. People are more important than things. Don't lay up treasures in this world. They won't go with you. But pour your life into those that God has given to you to love and those you are given to minister to. That's who matters. And that's the impact we can make. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness shall, that wicked shall be upon him. You know what that's saying? You're going to have to pay for what you've done. So it's important for you to live out your life as you should today. There is a payday, and it's not today. It was not back in November. Boy, it wasn't. But the reality is God is still in control. 
And we've got to do what he's called us to do. We can't become discouraged. We can't become like Absalom to get distracted and frustrated with life. Years ago, I read a little book, and I'll end with this, uh, by a man named Jim Cimbala. Now, a lot of people know a lot about Jim Cimbala because of Brooklyn Tabernacle's choir. But the choir is a small portion of the story of, of that ministry. Jim Cimbala came to Brooklyn years ago when, when the old Brooklyn Tabernacle Church was falling apart. It had a handful of members. You could put everybody that came to that church in the front two rows here in the middle of this church. They loved the church, but they spent more time taking care of the building that was rotting and falling apart. But God calls Jim Cimbala and his family there in a mighty way. And they prayed ceaselessly for weeks about what they should do. And amazingly, in fact, if you get this little book, and it's, it's, there, there are many millions of copies of this book floating around, and it's wonderful. The first chapter is entitled, The Baby Under Attack. And what Jim tells in here is about once he and his family literally moved into the church. They lived, and, and the reason I was attracted to this is the first church I pastored in downtown Atlanta, which, by the way, this church seats about 550, something like that. My church seated 1,000. It had a three-story three English Tudor mansion attached to it that my office was in. In fact, my office that I had there was the size of a basketball court. I thought, I mean, it looked like the president was there. We only had 85 members, granted, but we were right on Ponce de Leon, not far from Emory University. Beautiful property, but small church. And I lived in the coach house of the mansion in the back. I lived on the church property. And so I identified with what Jim Cimbal and his family had done. They'd been there a few weeks, and suddenly a family calls them out of the blue from out west, and they said, God has called us to come and help you. They never identified how they found out or anything. They just said, God has called us. And Jim Cimbala said he learned the most important lesson about people. This couple came with their children and they moved in and they step by step, increment by increment, began to create a wall between the few members that were left there and Jim Cimbala's pastor. He said it was just absolutely insidious how they would do that. He had actually walked up behind a member there that was listening to one of these family members destroy and lie about what he had done. He was terrified. He said, all that God's called us to do here is being destroyed by this one family. And he said, I don't know what to do. You know what he did? Not only did he pray, but he did this. He confronted that family before the whole church, and he rebuked them. And he said, what you were doing is of the devil, not of God. And in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. The church supported him and backed him, and they left. Then the church started to grow. I'm sure that when Jim Cimbala wrote this book, that David in heaven thought, wow, that's exactly what my son did. Now, what, the rest of the story that, that I'll just tell you if you don't know is he did lead an attempt to overthrow his father. His father did not do battle with him. He fled. Do you notice that David is king 
Wasn't afraid to walk up and face a giant when God said, go kill him. In fact, like I said, he took five stones with him because Goliath had four brothers. He didn't go to kill a giant. He went to wipe out a family. But when there were those he loved that he felt were apart but misled by something evil, he would run. He ran from his father-in-law. He ran from his son. Both men, Saul and Absalom, died horrible deaths. But David did what was right. Dear friend, rebuke evil however it comes to you. If it comes through a person, rebuke it and don't encounter that person and attack them. Love them and pray for them. But know this, in the world that we live in, there is evil. And I always remind myself when I end my prayers at night with this. When Jesus was telling the disciples of all the horrible things that were going to happen to them, and I can't imagine what they looked like as he did that, but he ended his statement with this. He said, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And because of that, we're here today. Let us pray. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us in all that we do. And may we not be naive and believe that somehow there won't be confrontation when we try to do what is good for truly. Satan doesn't notice us until we begin to take a stand for you, Lord. And I pray that we can realize that when we confront problems and frustrations and evil such as that, there is only one way to overcome that. It's not through our words, but it's through what you, Jesus, have done on the cross for us. We thank you for that. May we be found faithful to you and may we seek you out when we're going through struggles in life. And I pray that as we go into this invitation time that you would speak to anyone that is struggling with life and, and needs that direction that only, Lord, you can give. Lord, if there's someone here that needs to come and join this church, I pray that, that your spirit would speak and they would respond. If someone needs to come and be baptized, God, allow them the freedom to do that. Whatever the need, I pray that your spirit would call and that we would respond. For we pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.